you can't pour from an empty cup. So filling yourself up allows you to pour things onto other people, whether that be love, whether that be encouragement, all these things. It, it comes from like you believing that within yourself first. Welcome back, everybody. We're here for another episode of Comeback Stories. And today, our guest is Drew Robinson, professional baseball player. Drew was drafted in the fourth round back in 2010 by the Texas Rangers. He's played for the St. Louis Cardinals and the San Francisco Giants. So back on April 16th of 2020, just last year, Drew survived a suicide attempt. But the most important message about Drew's story is his comeback, and that's exactly why we're talking to him today. I first learned about Drew through the ESPN documentary, Alive, the Drew Robinson story, and I was just blown away by his bravery and honesty and vulnerability and the way he was able to tell his story just one year after his suicide attempt. So Drew, it's an honor to have you here, man. Welcome to Comeback Stories. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. I don't know if there's a better title for a thing to talk about my story with. So appreciate you guys having me on your podcast. Dude, yours, yours is epic. It takes the cake. There's a lot of, there's been a lot of good comeback stories so far, but yours is one for the ages. So can you tell us a little bit about what growing up for you was like? Yeah, it was pretty fast paced. My brother and I were totally into baseball, full travel ball schedule of playing every weekend, probably in a different state, obviously going to school and all those things, but just being obsessed with sports as a young kid and just constantly being outside and constantly just getting into mischief and stuff. Growing up in the Vegas area, that was definitely the case. Just, I don't know, the way Vegas is set up, there's really not much going on. So our lives just revolved about around sports at, at all times. So it was really fast-paced for my family and I. Beautiful. Can you talk to us a little bit about growing up and playing the sport of baseball or maybe even just getting into, we all have our struggles early on. Can you think about some early memories of pain that you had. Yeah, I was that kid that wore my, my heart on my sleeve at all times. And I was an emotional roller coaster at all times. So playing a, a sport like baseball, where even as a little league player, even though you're succeeding a lot more than you do in a professional level, I still was like nonstop getting down myself, crying, slamming my gear, slamming stuff because I was getting out. And if you ask any of my teammates back then, you would, they would definitely say I was the most drastic one because I was, like I said, I was an emotional wreck at all times. I think it comes from my brother was just like an, a physical stud growing up and being like following his footsteps. I always felt like I was, I don't know, trying to be like the next Chad Robinson, be the next version of my brother. And because I was like a late bloomer, I was always a lot smaller than everybody. So I wasn't always the best player on the team. I always felt like I was falling short. So anytime I got out. It was just a simple out in baseball. Anytime I made an error, I was definitely the kid that would come in and start crying, slam my stuff. And thinking back, I can only imagine how annoying it was for like my coaches and, and parents and, and things like that. So that was definitely that kid that was a little too emotional. But now it's just something I'm proud of that I wear my heart in my sleeve. Yeah, it's interesting how things will shift, but how certain events in our life cr- have to create that perspective change where we can look back on it. And at the time, it might look like a weakness, but really it, it is a strength. And I think I'm fascinated because just randomly your documentary on ESPN Alive was on last night again, and I could watch that thing a thousand times. If you haven't watched it, check it out on ESPN. It's a beautiful documentary. And, and again, like on the intro where I shared the way that you were able to tell your story 
just one year after. I was so taken back by it. And of course, we're like, we got to get through on. We got Darren in Vegas. We got you in Vegas. So again, it's just great to have you here. But one of the things you talked about on the documentary was just this, how hard you'll be on yourself because there's this unrealistic view of perfection. Darren and I talk a lot about the four agreements. We do some coaching around that where we all have this image of perfection growing up and, and it's not real. It's not even realistic. So we can actually never meet it. And, and so we're chasing this idea of perfection, which ultimately we never get to it, which has us feeling less than or not enough. Do you feel like that you talked about it on the, on the show, but can you just elaborate on how that impacted you? Yeah, it was tough. It's just one of those things that if you're trying to be perfect and live a mistake-less life, you're constantly going to be having that burden and that or that weight of when things do go wrong, you think it's because of you, you think it's all your fault. And just it just it's just so heavy to carry around each day, knowing that when things go wrong, you're gonna like just I don't know, for me, anytime there's some adversity, I just thought I was completely failing at my entire life, not just like in that specific situation or whatever it was. So anytime I made a mistake on the baseball field, anytime I mistreated someone in a relationship or did something that I wasn't really proud of in a, like outside of baseball, I just really fixated on it and thought it was because I was a bad person. So kind of like trying to live up to these expectations that I subconsciously set for myself was impossible to do. And every time I felt like I was falling short, I like really fixated on it and really let it like, eat at me and living a life like that at times I was good at I mean I can remember plenty of times before my before my incident I I was good at distracting myself when that would happen and I would be able to write it off and go and I don't know go out and have a dinner or even go out and like party or something just find something to distract myself from the pain I was feeling inside from feeling lesser of a person but as I found out that becomes very detrimental and it only creates more of a weight to carry around. So that's what happened with me. And at times I thought that I was under control. I had things figured out at times I thought I was completely lost, but then things just got a little too heavy and that's what eventually led up to April 16th. But this idea of perfection of a mistakeless life is so unrealistic. And as I'm finding out those mistakes that you think are like very detrimental are really just, really just lessons in disguise. So that's what like really I try to focus on now and I'm definitely not perfect at it still. It's still something that I'm realizing it's going to take a lot of time to change those habits. And it's something that I created over 28 years. So just a year later, I'm finding out that I still have some pretty deep-rooted habits that I fall back on. And they're not the best habits, but it's something that I'm willing to work on now that as before, I would just try to distract myself and not think about it. I even think about the contrast of this idea of perfection and then playing a sport that's a game of failure where you're going to fail more times than you're going to be successful from a hitting standpoint, at least. So it's like even more impactful, right? If you're, if you have this image of perfection and you're even failing seven out of 10 times, you're still going to be very successful. That can take a toll. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. There's so much room for comparison, not just in life, but especially baseball. And that's what I was doing. I constantly thought that I was lesser of a player when I would look and compare myself to someone across the field or someone on my team. I would only notice the good things that they were doing and like their skill sets and like their strengths in the field. But I would only fixate on what I was falling short in. It just created this really uncomfortable feeling of being the lesser player, which eventually led to me feeling a lesser person like outside of baseball. That 
again, that idea of perfection, especially in a sport that is is failure rooted. It was just a recipe for an unfortunate emotional balance. And that's that's where I found myself. And unfortunately, it led to a really bad decision. But I'm so grateful to still be here. And I'm hoping I can use those lessons and use like these, this perspective change to try to help other people and maybe avoid that those kind of burdens. You're doing that. You're doing that in a huge way, man. And it's uh, your story. And Darren and I always talk about perspective and, and how it's not the event that happens, but the meaning we attach to it. And to see how quickly you have bounced back and looked at that, that, that setback, if you will, of the decision that you made, where it's giving you a, a purpose beyond anything you probably would have ever imagined. So I just want to acknowledge you for seeing that. And it's, just, it's so interesting, just like the symbolisms, even with losing an eye but then having this whole different perspective, it's almost like that had to happen for you to see through a new pair of glasses or through a completely different perspective, which has completely changed your life. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty wild. It's something that I still think about every once in a while. Dang, I just, I'm so thankful that I came out of it the way I did because I could have easily got even more depressed because that's usually what happened with failed suicide attempts is that, you get another like layer of depression because you failed, but you didn't want to be here and then you're still here. So you get more depressed usually is the case. So I'm just so thankful that I came out of it with a different mindset and like the opposite perspective. And I don't know exactly. I don't even know what to attribute it to. I just, I'm thankful for it. And I, it's something that I to think about because the moment I woke up from my first surgery, I was thinking that way. Like I, I remember having conversations the first day in the hospital with my family, like, how can we use this in a positive way to help others avoid this? What can I do? Can I start a foundation? Can I do this? Can I do that? what? How do we use this in a positive way? And that's something that like took my family by surprise. And I'm looking back, it surprises me, but it's something that we really had to weigh the options with. We, we couldn't just jump right into it. So it was April 17th, uh, April 18th, these first conversations was happening and the documentary didn't come out until February 2nd. So there was a lot of time where we were thinking on things and trying to make sure that this is the right decision. This is something that I can even handle mentally and emotionally because, I mean, at the time I, I thought I did, but as I'm learning, this is this has been pretty overwhelming, but in a good way. Like it's been a, an amazing experience, but taking this role as a voice, I really need to make sure I was comfortable doing this. So it's something that my family and I really had a lot of talks on and, and really made make sure that we were going to be ready to do this because it's something I was also asking a lot of my family at the time too, to be so vulnerable and talk about our past history and all these things out in the open in the public. It's pretty crazy to think that nothing specifically happened other than just like a spiritual awakening type shift. And it's created a new perspective and it's something that I had to still go in and out of, but it's something that's for the most part still predominantly there. And it's something that is a lot more comfortable to live with. Who would you say growing up, I feel, I feel like you've had a solid foundation. Did you have a first teacher like growing up or even maybe playing in rookie ball or in the minors? Like, who would you say was your first real teacher? I would definitely say the first one was my high school baseball coach. He was just such a genuine person, such, I don't know, he was just a teacher first and like a life teacher first, baseball coach second. And he was really hard on us and really hard nosed and old school, but I was able to like see the passion that he had for us as human beings before a baseball player. I, I still talk to him daily, not daily, but I still talk to him all the time. And it's something that, I don't know, I just value it because it's not an everyday thing where you just run into someone that just cares about you so much without having any kind of past history. So the fact that I 
came into the, this, the field and having this person just care about me as a human being first, I would say he was my first. And then there's a couple of coaches and teammates throughout my minor league career that I just have just a stronger relationship with a lot more, like a lot more naturally. Definitely my high school coach was first and then going back to even like my, my father and stuff. So I've been lucky enough to have a lot of that, but it's something I definitely didn't tap into until things got ugly. No, I can definitely relate to that. I know I had a million people that were trying to help me when I was going through, when I was going through family, coaches, front office people. And it was like, better take me getting to the point where I was ready to help myself. I was willing to listen and to be open to that help. And then all of a sudden they were the greatest assets to me in my life. So uh, I can definitely relate to that. But yeah, I definitely want to, in order for people to see the magnitude of your comeback, I know that we need to give them a vivid picture of what your darkest moments were like. So take us back to April 16, 2020, and even the days leading up to it, and what were the emotions that were going through you, uh, the thoughts you were having, and what ultimately led up to to what happened? Yeah, so it's pretty crazy how fast it happened when I think about it, because, I mean, like I said, I, I wore my heart on my sleeve, and I was going in and out of a really happy mood to a really depressed mood throughout my life, but I didn't get, I didn't really understand the depths of it until early February of 2020, which is when I called off a wedding. And I was just really questioning every decision I was making, the relationship I had. It seemed like everything I was touching, I was ruining. So I felt like I was just always falling short. And I was just like at the lesser person in the room at all times. And then I was also in the stage of my career where it was either time to make the adjustment or it could, the end could be happening really soon. So I had good opportunities to play for, at that time, like nine years, 10 years, but I just wasn't making that jump of like becoming a, like an everyday player type thing in the big leagues. And once you got opportunities, the, the end in sight happening pretty quickly. So I, I was really questioning, I was really worrying about being done with baseball, being an athlete my whole life. Like it's easy to jump to like baseball is the only thing I'm good at. So after this is done, like I'm not going to do anything successful and I wouldn't be struggling like financially, all these stressors were going through my mind. And yeah, I didn't call off a wedding and questioning that and then questioning myself. So going into spring training, middle of February of 2020, all those things were on my mind. And then I just started having these realizations that I was really thinking deeply about life in itself, like questioning if life is worth it. Like I feel like crap inside most of the time. So it's really worth it pushing through all this uncomfortable emotions and feelings to just live so again i was just questioning what was happening and then that's when i realized hey i'm really questioning like life like, do i want to live so am i like thinking about ending my life and so those ideas turn from passive to like concrete ideation of suicidal thoughts and i really started like planning it out and that's what i still it's still really uncomfortable to talk about because i it just seems so planned out and so as if i was planning my next month's schedule it, it, it just was it's just uncomfortable to think about that. I was thinking about something so severe and so extreme in such a like coherent, thought-out way. But that's what I was doing. I really wanted to make sure if I did it, I left things as clear as possible for my family and friends. I didn't want anyone to feel guilty. Um, I didn't want to just leave anything unexplained or un- unturned. So I was going through a lot of spring training through the month of February and March, and I was like actually writing things down on my phone, like leaving notes about this is a topic I would want to touch on if I did write a suicide note and I did do this. So for a couple of months, I was thinking about it. Even in spring training, I went and 
went to a gun range and practiced shooting a gun because I didn't know how to do that. I didn't know how any of that worked. But it's just so planned out that it's really unfortunate because I was so aware of it. That was an opportunity to tell somebody, tell uh, the professional therapist I was seeing at the time or the professional psychologist I was seeing at the time, reach out to all these people that I've learned now that care about me, like my family, friends, and all these things. It was such a clear chance to like just tell someone, are these thoughts that you might have? Is this normal to be thinking this way? And then, unfortunately, I didn't take that risk. But leading up to the end of or the middle of March when the pandemic happened, that's when things got really serious because we had to go from having the everyday work of baseball and being on the field for hours a day and being around people to going to an empty house because I called off a wedding for the first time. Walking back into my house, I'll never forget the first day I got back for quarantine, opening my front door and not hearing the footsteps of my dog running toward me. I'll never forget that feeling of my heart dropping like, man, this is quiet. This is not fun. And then walking in and seeing a care package from the girl that I called off a wedding from who left food for me, toilet paper, because at that time that was hard to get. All the, like Just another amazing sign that this person is an angel that still cares about me after all, everything I put her through. I'll just never forget those first like 10 to 15 minutes of the house and realizing I don't want to do this. I don't understand why anyone cares about me when I do push all these people away. So for the next month, that led to a lot of, during quarantine, it led to a lot of drinking and a lot of just sitting in my thoughts, which were all really bad, dark thoughts. They eventually got to a point where I was actually reaching out for help a couple of times because I told my sister I'm lonely. I need a foster dog. I'm so used to having dogs. I'm so used to having someone with me all the time, but I'm just completely alone. So I, I tried to have a foster dog for a couple of weeks. It didn't really work out. And then I was like, I'm going to get my own dog. Like maybe if I get my own puppy and raise it and I have a responsibility, it'll give me some kind of purpose. And I went to, on April 13th, I went to pick up this dog. And it was like, for some reason, that was the tipping point. Like I couldn't take this dog home if I was still thinking about doing this because for some reason, I just couldn't leave this little puppy to fend for itself. And so on April 13th is when I like officially decided, dang, I'm really going to do this. And it's really crazy to think about too, because why was... I know it's just like the, the weight of another soul that would be losing me, but why was it like that puppy, the tipping point? Why am I able to leave my family behind, but not that puppy? So it was just really uncomfortable, another uncomfortable thing to think about. So that another layer of guilt hit me. It was like, I'm able to, to leave my family, but um, not this little dog that I don't even know. So for the next, from April 13th until the night of April 16th, I was working on my suicide note. And try to explain things as best I could. And I even wrote it in. I know this doesn't justify what I'm doing, but I just wanted to do my best to try to explain what went on inside my mind. And that's something that's, I don't know, that just shows like how powerful and how meaningful of a support system I have. Because even in my darkest times, all I was thinking about was trying to take care of them. And that just shows like how strong they were and how strong they are. And then that eventually led to April 16th around. 5 p.m. I actually left my house and went to go do it in my truck somewhere so that way it wasn't a scene to be found by like my family members or a friend. But I just felt uncomfortable doing it in my truck. So I came home and on April 16th, around 8 p.m., I shot myself in the head. And that's when the start of a miracle happened. And the next 20 hours, I was roaming around my house waiting for the, what I thought was the end until I realized I wanted to live and it's a really beautiful moment in like the most ugly circumstances, but I was able to choose life. I was able to call 911 and choose to save my life. And luckily that's what was able to happen. 
I love how you said that it's a beautiful moment in ugly circumstances. And it's crazy how such traumatic, such life-threatening events could end up being one of the most valuable experiences that we had in our life. What do you think that experience did for you? Was it like a reset for you? Was it uh, freedom for you, from your old life for you? What do you think that did? It's really crazy to think about because it's something that I regret. And it's something that I understand is like the worst decision possible. And it's something that I really take seriously and not glorifying that decision. But for some reason, it's, it just opened my eyes to realize that there's a lot more to life than just being a really good baseball player, being the best at whatever thing I'm trying to be the best at. And it's kind of crazy because it's something my psychiatrist and I have come up with and worded it as I shot myself, but I killed my ego because at times the ego just gets in the way of everything. It's just so prideful. It wants you to be this superstar. It wants to be like the best of the best without taking care of whatever, just take care of yourself. Well, I still believe that's true. You definitely need to take care of yourself, but there's also a lot of things that go into life now that I didn't pay attention to before. And I don't know, again, I don't know exactly how it switched within me, but it just seemed like just maybe having a near-death experience, it opened up a lot of realization that just the simplest things in life are the most important things in life. Like finding strength in like the simplicity of life and finding the power and relatability to the people around you and all these things. It's just, it's so powerful and something that is out of my control. Like I said, I've said it in other interviews and things that this isn't my message. This is a message of just life. <laughs> and like I said, it's just so much bigger than me and I'm just a messenger. And I'm just trying to like be a reminder to people that to, at this point, I'm just trying to remind people if they see me and just think, Oh, that's the guy that did this. He wants someone to take care of themselves. So if I can just be a reminder for someone to think about themselves in a deeper way and think about the people around them in a deeper way, then that's all that really needs to happen. That's amazing, man. I love the part where you said there's so much more to life than just being a good baseball player. And I know a lot of people need to hear that because they want to be so good and they want to grind so hard so that they can be recognized and to be held in high regard for what they do. But it's really about more, you know, what's the person I'm becoming? Like, who am I as a human being? I'm not a human doing. So I want to ask you, what's your relationship with baseball like now? How are your relationships with your family and relationships with anyone that you may be dating? Like, how are those, how have those experiences improved? Yeah, it's really crazy because I went back into the belly of the beast for baseball, like my biggest stressor coming back and playing. I've gone through times where I've fallen in the exact same thought patterns and habits as I did before, and it got really scary. I've even had times of having suicidal thoughts again. So understanding that one, things aren't going to just change overnight and it takes a lot of work. And it's only been a little over a year since being at my darkest of dark time. The relationship with baseball has completely changed. And it's interesting because I have to really focus on finding this sweet spot in between really wanting to be a good baseball player and competitor, but also realizing there's more to life than being a baseball player. I'm on one end of the spectrum where I'm just trying to just be the best player ever. And I'm just like sacrificing all kinds of things. But then sometimes I wake up and I'm on the opposite end of the spectrum where I'm like, Baseball is not as important as being a good uh, partner to Diana and not as being a good son to my father and mom and all these things. So trying to find that sweet spot in between those two of like really trying to trying to improve my skill set and trying to appreciate things, all the little things. So that's something that I've like really focused on, like with my journaling, my meditation. And it's like a, I don't know, a little trademark of like finding the sweet spot in between all kinds of these emotions that 
we always bounce back and forth and like having prideful egos and then uh, maybe taking things a little too lightly at times. So trying to find a sweet spot in between all these things is uh, something that I try to focus on because as I'm learning, I'm not able to just turn all these negative thoughts off like I would want to. So really trying to focus on that sweet spot and trying to find the, the comfort in between the, the two uncomfortable sides. Darren and I always talk about finding the middle ground. The saying is the middle ground is the holy ground to yeah. be able to just to be in the middle, to be able to ride the waves because the waves are coming, especially in a sport like baseball, especially in the game of life, the waves are coming. And that's why you mentioned meditation and journaling, which Darren and I are all obviously both fans of that and are in the practice of those. And the, the way that meditation can allow us to find our center. I was sure that I have on my site that says find your center, right? And that's what this is about. We all are going to have these stressors when things that are thrown at us every single day, and we have to have a practice, tools, techniques that are going to allow us to come back home to our center. It's like our coming back to our body because our body knows where home is, but our mind takes us down these roads that makes us feel homeless or alone. And I know, gosh, there's so much in what you just said. And I wanted to jump in so many times because you're like, you're speaking our language here. But you talked about in recovery, Darren and I are both in recovery. And we went down a pretty dark road when it comes to mental health. But we were in the, the thrones of our addiction. And today, I think about the, my past. And there's still some things that are very shameful. It's decisions that I made and um, pain I put my family through. But we say that we don't regret the past, but we also don't shut the door on it. And we don't shut the door on it because it's a reminder. For me, it's a reminder that I want to be free. I wasn't free when the pills and, and the drugs had its grip on me. So it, my, my past reminds me like I've got work to do. And it's about being free from ourselves, really, and getting out of our own way. Yeah, it's like I said, it's so powerful because... It's just something that everyone can agree on. I think everyone can agree they want to feel better at times. They, they want to be a better version of themselves. So how, how are you going to do that? And for me and for a lot of people, it's just, it's really trying to be mindful of your decisions and all kinds of things that you, that I used to like habitually do without even realizing. I was just constantly living in subconsciously. I just was on like autopilot, not even making my decisions. I remember that sometimes I would be doing something in the middle of the day and I would say, I don't want to do that this later in the, in the day. But then I would say, oh, who knows what will happen? I'm just like feeding those impulses, like giving freedom, like giving the strength to the impulses, like knowing I don't really want to do something, but who knows later on around that time, maybe I'll have an impulse and then that'll allow myself to do and that'll justify making that decision. And I say that, when, I don't know, thinking about back when I was younger, I used to party, like sometimes I didn't really want to go to the party and drink with my friends, but Sometimes I would just be like, in the morning, I would say, I don't really want to go, but maybe later in the day, I would, I would want to. So I was just like feeding that desire, those impulses of just living subconsciously and not like having an actual, any control on what I would want to do and what my mind was telling me to do. Well, and it's, it's just the power of our imagination. We're using our imagination every single day. and Mostly we're using it to work against us. We're creating drama and fear and worries that typically never even happen. But we always like to say, like, thoughts become things. And I give the analogy often from an addiction standpoint, but I want to touch on this and touch on your meditation practice because this is about training our mind to work for us. And all that arises starts with our thoughts. So I don't want to speak on your story, but I would 
have to believe that the thought of ending your own life, like at some point that started with one thought. And then the more we think about it, it becomes an actual thing where it moves us into action. Yeah, no, definitely. And that's almost in a way kind of comforting because if you think of it in a positive way, you can really manifest some really positive things in your life and really good perspective. So if you have one positive thought, it might not feel like it does anything right away. But if you keep on adding to them in a week's time, a month's time, you realize, dang, I've been really positive this last month. And you just start building momentum and building on top of that. Unfortunately, that's what happened to me on the flip side of that in a negative way. It started with some passive suicide thoughts and all of a sudden it turned into actual planning and taking action. But it's something that I really focus on now is like in my meditations. And even now, like I still fall short at times. I just got my yearly stats for my meditation app and I meditated like 280 days. So like I talk about all these consistency consistencies, but I still missed 80 days worth of meditating. It's something that I try to focus on more. It's just like being mindful of my thoughts and being under, like, in understanding that whatever I think about is, is usually the case. So if I can focus more about being present and more in the moment, then I'll probably have a much clearer understanding of where I'm at rather than when I stress about financials and the future, stress about what my future is going to look like at any time. So when I'm able to focus on being present and just kind of understand like a lot of times I say what can I control right now what's something I control right now and, and most of the time it's literally just like the most simple things and it for some reason I don't know the science behind it but for some reason it just lets you kind of like take a breath and understand that things are going to be okay for the next five seconds then before you can build on top of that and for what's been a really good day been a good week been a good month and that doesn't take anything other than just having that belief or having that thought things are good right now and like I said I didn't do anything different I didn't like actually didn't go to the store and buy something nice. I didn't like make any more money. I just thought what's happening in this moment. And all of a sudden I feel a little bit better. Yeah. I feel like you're saying a lot of powerful stuff. And I know there's people listening that, that need to hear this. What would you say was the actual story? What was the story that you had to stop telling yourself so that you could tell your comeback story? Yeah, we might have another interview for that answer, but I just had so many insecurities about myself. Like I said, I thought that I was not that good at baseball. I was, there was times I was on the field playing the major leagues and I was like, I'm not that good at baseball. So having all these insecurities, I always was really tough on myself with like intelligence. I didn't take school like super serious. I got by with good grades, but I wasn't like in the accelerated classes. So when all my friends were going to college, like they were getting really successful. So I thought that I wasn't as smart as them. So I had this insecurity of my intelligence. I always have insecurities of just if I take a day off from working out, then I'm failing. Like I, I don't deserve success because I'm slacking. Really, like I've realized taking care of yourself mentally is more important than the physical side of things. But I just had all these expectations that I put on myself and in every aspect. So anytime things didn't go exactly how I planned it, I thought it was because I was lesser and I wasn't worthy of whatever I was working towards. So like I said, if I took a day off and working out, I felt like I wasn't worthy of having success in baseball because I, I, I cut corners and really it's just one day out of 11, 12 year career. That's not going to affect too much. But like I said, I think just having these expectations of perfection and not just baseball, but every aspect of my life, anytime like Diana was a little upset about something, for some reason I was like so selfish that I turned it in to my problems. Like, this is because of me somehow, rather than just assessing what was happening with her, trying to make things better for her. Somehow I was spinning like, oh, this is my fault. This is on me. Um, and it's because of me that she doesn't feel great. 
it's just like the cycle of like mental anguish that I just was unknowingly putting myself through. And like I said, over time, it just created this gigantic weight that I wasn't able to hold anymore. Yeah, the expectations. I mean, they always just pigeonhole us. So we could feel like we're, we could be doing something pretty damn good. But then if it, if we feel like we're missing the ball by an inch, it's just considered a failure to us because we expected perfection from ourselves or expected us to do no wrong. And it's, I'm grateful that I'm free from having to put those things on myself and that I can just put myself in the processes and trust that they'll work out the way that they're supposed to. But uh, so yeah, I want to ask you what today, what are you most grateful for? I, I think about that day so often and just think about like when I'm doing something today, I think about, man, I almost missed this or what my family's doing, what Diana's doing. And I think, man, I wouldn't have been here to see that. I wouldn't have been here to like be proud of them or just, uh, just be here. And that's something that, like I said, I'm so thankful for and so grateful for. And it's something that I've like promised myself over and over that I wouldn't miss anything that I'm experiencing now. So overall, I'm grateful for all kinds of things. And this past year, especially because it's been the most powerful experience as a whole, recovering with my family, just getting back to a, a, a place of normalcy and then just like accidentally getting back into baseball and then being given an opportunity to play baseball again having the E60 come out and hearing the messages from all the people I've seen it and just feeling like I'm part of this community of wanting to better myself with this like community of people that are all involved in mental health. But the overall idea of just being here and being a part of life still, which is something I didn't want at some point, it's just so heavy and so powerful. I'll never take for granted again. Darren and I are always on the theme of self-love and I, man, it's just nothing brings more joy than having guys talking about this whole idea of self-love. I may even hear, maybe you can touch on this a little bit more, but with Diana, this angel of a soul calling off the wedding. It's all about self-love. I'm wearing a shirt right now that has the definition Darren and I created, a belief system knowing that the most important relationship you'll ever have is the one you have with yourself. So if we're not loving ourselves, if we can't love ourselves, flaws, we truly can't love somebody else. So can you just talk about how maybe that lack of self-love you had for yourself impacted your ability to receive love and then ultimately give it back away? Yeah, I think it goes back to like how I used to like somehow spin everything into being all about me because even though I was trying to give love or give something to someone else, I didn't have that within me. So I was like subconsciously spinning it to be about me because I was lacking so much of that for myself that I, in terms, trying to get it from someone else, even though it was like a time to help someone else. So flipping the script on that and like really just giving myself grace at times and understand, even when I do fall short at times, I wasn't trying to do that. I was just trying to be the best that I could. Again, talking about baseball, I'm trying to be the best baseball player I can or if it's in life, I'm just trying to be the best partner as I can and like the best at understanding what's going on around me. So understanding that I am just trying to do the best I can all that needs to happen and that allows me to have a better understanding of myself and a better I don't know, awareness about what's going on within me and that just naturally gives you better understanding for other people and one of the quotes that I've said it in probably every interview that I've done so far, but you can't pour from an empty cup. So filling yourself up allows you to pour things onto other people, whether that be love, whether that be encouragement, all these things. It it comes from like you believing that within yourself first. And at times, like I've said a couple times already, it's so hard to do because 
life is really hard and at times it beats you down and you start to question what you're doing. But when you get back to that simple idea of taking care of yourself first and loving yourself first, that just naturally eases, eases things up with like your relationships with people that are around you. And in turn, it just affects the people that are around you. And that's something that I've heard in like I've, some podcasts that I've listened to and things that I've kind of experienced myself. Once you start taking care of yourself, you'll just be surprised at how quickly it affects the people around you. It's like that saying, if you just, I forget the exact saying, but when you, when you take care of yourself, people start to notice and they even start complimenting like, oh man, you just look happier lately. Or you look, or they'll say you look better lately. And it's, no, it's not really looking in a certain ways. I'm just happier. And it's, it's just this energy that kind of exudes out of you. And it's something that is, again, another really powerful thing to experience. Yeah, it sounds like even with the giving, even the giving love or trying to give it to Diana or our people, and then it's almost being attached to outcomes. And in, even in a sport like baseball, when, you're, when all of your validation and your success um, is coming from outcomes, which we don't actually have control over, especially in a sport like baseball, you could go over four and crush the ball four times. And you don't have control over the ball falling or not. So I think even just when we do that with a friend or a partner where we give the love, but then we don't get it back. And then all of a sudden it's something's wrong with us. We make it about us instead of just giving and detaching from the outcomes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's tough. There's like, we've talked about, there's that sweet spot or that balance that you need to find. And for me, it was another tough thing about it was I was always trying to spin things into being about me, but also I wasn't like when I would spin it to be about me, I almost wouldn't receive it because I didn't want the help. I didn't want to say, or my ego wanted to say that I did everything by myself. Like I was a successful person. Like I wanted to be able to say it's because of all the work I did rather than all the help that I received from along the way from my coaches and Diana and the people that always supported me. For some reason, I just wouldn't like allow myself to take in the love that I was also like searching for. So I was like, I was subconsciously asking for it all the time, but when I would get it, I would shove it away. No, I don't need that. I'm too tough. I don't need that weak shit out of here. <laughs> I don't need that weak stuff. But like just that idea of being tough and being doing things on your own, it's just, it's so irrelevant nowadays. And it's being able to receive something from others is one of the most beautiful things I've ever experienced. And it's something that's taken that Diana and I's relationship to a whole other level. Like she, cause she goes through her own things. And now that I'm like, like admitting to having some pretty uncomfortable thoughts, it's allowed me to relate to her and be there for her when she's going through her things. And at the same time, that now that I know that she's going through some things, I'm able to be there for her. It's just like this cycle that we just are able to support each other from much like from such a deeper place. And it's something that was not even close to happening before because I was so shut off. What are your non-negotiables today when it comes to your self-care practices or self-love practices? So for me, again, even though I don't do it every day, non-negotiables is meditating. It's something that I just, again, I don't even really understand it fully. I've really been doing it for a year, but it's something that I've gone, like the, the, the phase that I've gone without doing it are always the times when I get back into like depressive phase again and like getting some dark thoughts. So I don't know the exact science or exact reasons behind it, but when I'm doing it consistently, those are the times I'm feeling the best about myself. So just creating intentions and being way more aware of what I want and what I'm doing. But that's actually something that I've had some talks. I remember having this talk with my cousin at one point of non-negotiables and I couldn't come up with anything. And now it's like, 
meditating, journaling, talking to Diana like a little bit more than just like, what we're we going to do for dinner. Just like getting to know them. And that's something that I'm not just Diana. But I feel like I've gotten to know my family members that I knew for 28 years better in the last year than I did those 28 years prior. And that's something that I've done with everybody. And I think that's something that comes with that is a non-negotiable with talking to people more than just the surface level conversations of walking and passing. Hey, how are you doing today? No, hey, how are you doing today? What's going on today? Is there anything that I can do? And sometimes that, that can be like inconvenient for that person that they're not ready to talk about either. But just having some deeper level conversations at times, I find the most healing with myself and I find a better understanding because the more I talk about things, the clearer my reflections get with whatever that we're talking about. So holding it in can get a little bit foggy. Like you, you don't see clearly as much as as much as you would like and whatever you're thinking about. So when you, th- when you talk about it out loud, hear the truth and hear what you're thinking. And sometimes you realize it's not really justified. Talking about things in a much deeper level is definitely one of my non-negotiables. It's a beautiful thing to see you adopt all these things into your life, man, and to see your transformation from the inside out. And I wanted to ask you if, if you could have a conversation with the younger Drew, the, the 15-year-old Drew, the 20-year-old Drew throughout the process who was lost and trying to perform and trying to do all these things, what was a word of advice or a quote that you would share with him if you had the opportunity? Um, a quote that flashes in my head all the time now that I think, I don't know, think it would have resonated with my 15-year-old self, but it's something that I would like to plant the seed with him is like worrying about how things might go wrong, don't help him go. So this idea of like constantly thinking about the future, what's next, what I need to do next, and all these things isn't going to help things go right now. So just planting that seed of focusing on the present more often and understanding right now is all that's happening and not thinking about the past isn't what defines you. It it shaped you, but it doesn't define you. And then the future hasn't even happened yet. So this, and like I said, my 15-year-old self would have just like heard that, whatever, man, let's go play basketball or something. (laughs) Like just getting, just starting that conversation with the young kid um, especially myself, I think just getting the ball rolling and starting to like plant that seed that maybe a couple of days later you think about it, that is important. And then starting to get that ball rolling for more momentum and like becoming more mindful and more aware of, of what's going on, of just being, just simply being more present. What would you say to somebody maybe that's been in your position or is going down one of those roads or maybe even knows the one thing that's holding them back? And, and but doesn't know where to start, doesn't know what to do about it, what would you tell that person? For me, I would say just talk about it. I, I found so much power, so much healing, so much strength, all these things and just talking. Because like I said, the more you talk about it, the clearer things get. So for me, I was holding everything in. So everything was just so sped up inside me. And my thoughts just seemed so justified. They just seemed so real and they're so needed. But if I would have just said because like i said i was seeing a therapist throughout all this but i was still holding things in so for someone who's going through that that those thoughts talk to someone first but secondly let it all out because that's where i fell short and i was like still trying to put on persona. Ah, i'm struggling that's why i'm here but i for the most part i got it all figured out like I, i'm in, under i have more control than it might seem but really i didn't have any control i was thinking about all these crazy things so firstly i would say talk to somebody it doesn't need to be a professional. It could just be someone close to you. If you can have a professional, that I think that's even better. And then secondly, let it all out. Like really let it all out. And that's, like I said, that's for some reason, that's when the healing starts the most is because you're not holding anything back and there's nothing to hide anymore. And having that feeling of not hiding anything is the most freeing feeling that I've ever felt. 
And I know it's been an honor to talk to you today, man. I know we got to let you go in a second. But last question I want to ask you is if you had, if you could name one person or a few people that you could give a comeback story shout out to people that have helped you turn your life around, who have been there for you and uh, have shown you nothing but unconditional love, who would that one person or those few people be? Diana, uh, she's been my stability this whole time. The Giants organization, my psychologist with the Giants, my psychiatrist that I've kept up with weekly. And obviously my family, I put them through the absolute the emotional ringer this last year. And it's something that hasn't been easy for them, but they've stepped up and they, we've obviously gone through our things as a family, but for the most part, they were just there for me. And it's something that I, <laughs> like, I don't know. I just, I think about that scene. Like my, like I said in the documentary, my, my brother, my sister, my dad cleaned my house after everything that I, from the incident. Like it, it wasn't someone that was hired to come and clean my house. They went and like physically cleaned up all that damage that I had done. And that just shows like how much they care about me and how willing they are to like go through some of the most ugly and uncomfortable situations. Just be there for me. I'm forgetting all kinds of people, but Diana, number one, my family, the Giants organization as a whole, they've been so supportive, so willing to be there for me as a human being first, rather than just a product on the field that's helping them win games, my psychologist, my psychiatrist, and then all my friends that have also gone through all the same things my family have, and they've all just been willing to be there for me. And that's something that I don't take lightly because I know there's people out there that don't have that strong support system, and that's something that I'm really passionate about, and I think that's what's going to be coming up next for me is creating something that's going to allow people to feel like they have that support from the outside rather than being feeling like they're so alone. I can promise you, you've got two brothers right here by your side that will be an automatic yes to to anything you need uh, to lock arms, talk about mental health, to talk about addiction, to remind anybody out there that's struggling that you're not alone and you can't do this alone. So we just want to acknowledge you, man, for showing up big, being real and raw and honest. These are the types of conversations. Me and Darren get to have them. But so many other people are going to be blessed to hear your story. And if you have not found the Alive on ESPN, just Google it, find it, and watch this story. It'll blow your mind. Drew, thank you, brother, for showing up big. Thank you. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you for having me. I had a great time. I hope it helps open some people's eyes. This is what I represent. Staying true till I'm six down. It might take a little bit. Okay. But every king's gonna get crowned